This morning, I have the great privilege of beginning a four-part mini-series on the church. And this is going to be a series that is topical in its nature, but biblical in its content. The objective of this series is to renew our minds with biblical truth about the church So then to fuel our action for the church. And as I'm looking out at your faces, I'm thinking, so many of you have already had this happen in your life. Your mind has been renewed with biblical truth about the church, and your feet and your hands and your wallets and your time have been activated for action on behalf of the church. This morning, I begin the series with a message entitled, Understand the Church. Next week, my good friend Phil Corson, the senior pastor, actually the founding pastor of Abundant Grace Community Church in Gainesville, Florida, will be here to preach the second message entitled, Love the Church. August 9th, Corey Smidgen will teach the third message entitled, Build the Church. And then on August 16th, Danny Jones, the senior pastor and actually the founding pastor of Metro Life Church in Orlando, will complete the series with a message entitled, Extend the Church. Now, Phil's message on love the church will seek to provide truth that fuels your affection for the church. Corey's message entitled, Build the Church, will seek to provide a framework for us to participate in God's call to build this church. And if you're not a member of this church, that's fine. Go find a church that God leads you to to be a member of and go build that church. But the message on August 9th is going to give you biblical data to then equip you to go do that. And then Danny's message on the 16th, it's going to provide the biblical imperative, the biblical command to plant churches. We're about planting churches. What I find interesting is that Sunday, the 16th of August, will be Jose Prado's last Sunday. We will then be able to lay hands on him, pray for him, and send him to the pastor's college where he will be getting trained for a year where he'll come back, and then hopefully a few years later, we're going to plant a church in Hialeah with Jose as being the church planter. Can't wait for the message that Danny will bring. But this morning, God wants us to understand the church. He wants us to understand the church. God's purpose for you this morning is clearly outlined in the notes. Please read with me. God's purpose for us this morning, as stated in your notes, is this. Understand who we are and what we do as the church. God wants us to understand who we are and what we do as the church. That's the purpose for the message this morning. David Wells is an author. He's a seminary professor. He wrote an outstanding book called The Courage to be Protestant. And in that book, he basically said the following. What someone thinks about the church tells us exactly what that person is thinking about Christianity. See, our understanding of the church is crucial to our call as a Christian to live for God and not ourselves. You want his kingdom to come in your life? Thank you, Wally, for that exhortation. Do you want his government to rule rather than your self-government, even as a Christian? Do you want that? Then you've got to understand the church. The church is the body of Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, there in your notes. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How can you follow Jesus and not understand and love the church if the church is his body? You're not authentic. 
You're in it for yourself. That's meism. That's meanity, not Christianity. But it's not comfortable for us as Americans. We want to be consumers. God understand me. I don't really want to understand you. God serve me. God listen to me. We turn up the volume on me. This series is seeking to try to turn down the volume on me and you and turn up the volume on Jesus. Look around. Here's his body. That scripture says he's the head. That means he rules his government. We're the body. So we must understand the church. Do you understand the church this morning? Do you understand what the church does this morning? Do you understand who you are this morning? Now, let me just give you an illustration. By the way, I love the church. I, I love Jesus. The church is his body. But you know what I love about the church? There's parts of the body you don't see. That's a good thing, right? Uh, don't go there. Okay, stop that thought. Let's go back. Stay right here with me. Don't go there. I can feel some of you going there. Marcos, don't go there. All right. Right now, right now, there's a part of this church that you don't see that's providing a crucial service for some of you. And the reason I, I, I'm reminded of this is because I'm talking really fast right now. And I remember him telling me yesterday, now, Al, you're not going to have any coffee before you preach, are you? <laughs> yes, Nando, I had Cuban coffee. It's my brother, Nando Irisarri. You saw him playing the congas here. He's amazing. Right now, he's behind those doors translating for those that don't speak English, or at least not well enough that they are comfortable with my message. So until we plant that Spanish-speaking church in Hialeah, there's a part of the body serving the body that you don't see. I love the church. I love the church. We have a skeleton crew. Actually, it's just amazing there's this many people here. I'm serious. We have probably five or six families not here. And I'm not just talking about any families. I'm talking about families that do the overhead projection. Do it full time. They're not here, okay? That, that run the cables. They're all on vacation, which is great. Man, they have a great vacation. So like last night, the, the, the Toledos, Matt, Roxanne, we got it, Al. We got the ball. And they've had the ball for several weeks now. And I, I just, I think of them as I am not worthy to be in the same church as you guys. You are servants. I love the church. And they serve because Jesus is the head. They serve the Lord, but it serves us too. I, I, I love the church. I love the church. All right, here's an illustration. What I'm trying, the point I'm trying to illustrate is this. So what is the church? What is the authentic church? What does it look like? What are the marks of the church? Who are we? Let me give you a quick illustration. The U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the United States of America. It, it gives us everything that we have as a government. It gives us the legislative branch, which is Congress. It gives us the executive branch, the president. It gives us the judiciary branch, which is the Supreme Court. It tells those branches how to interact with one another. Now, it was, it was finalized, it was ratified in 1787, I believe September 17th, in Philadelphia. And it was penned by a gentleman named John Shallus, and I probably mispronounced his last name. And the original constitution is actually in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. 
How do we know it's authentic? And by the way, that constitution is very important. It's what gives us rights. The original constitution has 27 amendments. You didn't know you were going to get a history or civics class, did you? All right. 27 amendments. The first 10 of those amendments are very important. They're called the Bill of Rights. You're probably familiar with the first amendment. It's called the freedom of religion, what we're doing right here. The second amendment is the freedom to bear arms. It's a good one, right? All right. I had someone in mind when I said that. Uh, Constitution is important, guys. You don't know it, but it enables us to live the way we live. So how do we know we have the authentic Constitution? It's underneath protected glass in the National Archives. What is the mark of the Constitution? That that's the one. Well, there are many, but may I submit to you, there are several actually marks on that Constitution. They're called signatures. In fact, in the old days when people were illiterate, they literally said, make your mark. Some people just make a mark. But on our Constitution, it's signed. That's what authenticates it. The church is signed by the head of the church, the one authorized to authenticate it. Just like the Constitution was signed by the men who were the head of our country, the representatives sent by the states who then signed it and ratified it. The church is signed, and it's signed by Jesus Christ in his blood. Now, what does that mean? What does his signature look like? What are the marks of an authentic church? You're a guest here? Get in an authentic church. We'd love to have you here. God may not be calling you here. You find one. And let me, sh- let me tell you what to look for when you're finding one. There's no perfect church. But here are the marks. Here's what defines us, church, as church. Look in your notes. The marks of the church. Who we are. Later we'll get to what we do, but who we are. Number one, the first mark of the church is the faithful ministry of the scriptures or God's word. The faithful ministry of the scriptures. Underneath that point in your notes, would you jot down this reference? I'm about to read it to you. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen here. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 2. 2 Timothy 316 to 42. If you're new to Christianity or perhaps just getting back to the Bible, look in the table of contents, find 2 Timothy, go to chapter 3, start in verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 2. And this is what it says. By the way, this was an apostle, Paul the Apostle, writing to Timothy, the pastor of a church. And this is what he writes. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, which is what I'm doing right now, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, and that's man and woman, of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul now says, I charge you, he's talking to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, in the in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. We spoke of his kingdom this morning. Look at verse 2. What's it say? Preach the word. I get fired up by that. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience 
and teaching. Folks, Jesus is the word incarnate. He is the one who came to reveal the Father. And he did so through his life and through his word. And then he says, but I'm leaving my word. Here's the record of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. From beginning to end, Jesus is the subject of Scripture, the redemption of God. An authentic church is a church that faithfully ministers this word week in, week out. Folks, here's the principle. You can write these two words down. The sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. The sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. The sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. We are committed at Palm Vista Community Church, however imperfectly we try to do this, to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Scripture is sufficient for everything you and I need for salvation and to live our lives and to build this church. And Scripture is the authority by which we live our lives and build this church. Again, no one's perfect in an application Even when I know what's right to do, often I don't do it. I'm the first to acknowledge that. But we will not build this church on slick marketing or therapeutic ways of making people feel good. We will build this church on the authority of Scripture. And we will fight against the propensity or the drift in my own heart to think, you know, Scripture is great, but if we really want to make this church grow, we got to be slicky. We got we got to do something entertaining. We got to get some marketing going. No, we don't. We've lost our faith and the sufficiency of scripture and we've lost our way as a church in America. And it's my temptation as much as any pastor I know, so I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm pointing them all at me. But we are committed to holding each other accountable that we're going to preach the word and we're going to say the word is sufficient. To build a church. Let me give you an example. There is a scripture that we've studied about parenting and youth ministry. And again, hopefully you'll see it here in a moment. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I'm giving you an example of the mark of a church being faithful ministry of the word, of trusting in the sufficiency and the authority of scripture. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. It says the following. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2 of Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother. Notice those are in quotations. The reason those are in quotations, because the Apostle Paul is quoting Moses, who is quoting God in the fifth commandment. Okay? This is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Parentheses. This is the first commandment with the promise. Verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, we read that scripture. I have four children. Only one is still a teenager. But you're in the singles. All right. But only one is still a teenager, but all right. Stephanie's still 18, all right, so she's a teenager. So as I, as I look at that scripture, I think, what, what does it mean, what does youth ministry in America today look like if we trust the sufficiency and authority of scripture? 
And by the grace of God, knowing that I am fully capable of getting this wrong, <laughs> but consulting with Corey and others who I trust far more than myself, I see this. I should have a youth meeting where parents are invited and welcomed. Because the scripture says, children, honor your father and mother, not your youth pastor. There's other places that we should honor authority. I hear you. I got you. I'm with you. Okay. But like of the top five, 10 commandments, the fifth one, the first one that talks about how two human beings relate to each other, talks about children honoring your parents. Does it honor a parent when a child shares his deepest thoughts to someone else? Friend, youth pastor, coach, 900 number of a counselor somewhere, you know, psychic hotline, whatever. Does, does it honor that parent if they, that child shares with everybody else what they really are thinking, but just gives them, the parent, the religious pat answer that that parent wants? Does that honor you? Would it, would it be honoring to you if, if, if I say, hey, Dan, I'm doing great, buddy. And then I go, oh, Corey, man, I just need to share with you, bro. Can we go to your coffee? And, and Corey, if Dan hears about it, he goes, he doesn't think much of me. That's not very honoring with me. So what we're trying to do is build a youth program where Scripture's sufficient, though we're swimming against the waters of culture that says a kid won't open up at 16 or 17 if the parent's around. We're saying, but we've got to trust God that actually they're to honor their parent. And I know, I don't know how this is going to happen. <laughs> God, help. Because, <laughs> you know, when parents are there, youth meetings can be like, parents are here. <laughs> how uncool can this get? <laughs> but the Lord is saying, parents are here. How cool can this get? All right, so that's one example. We're not doing it perfectly. But I'm, I'm just trying to open up our minds to you and let you see how we're trying to apply the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture when it comes to how we build the church. You'll hear more about that from Corey later. We're also committed to preaching the Scriptures. Don't you love that? If we can throw that passage back up there, that 2 Timothy passage. I love this, man. Verse, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it again because I love it so much. I just imagine Paul, the, the grizzled apostle who's been beaten and shipwrecked and, I mean, bitten by poisonous snakes. And just this is, he's a man's man. And he's, he's looking at Timothy and he's got him by the scruff of the neck. At least if I were Paul, I would. And he's pulling his face down and he's going, Timothy, I charge you. This isn't like, if you kind of think about it, Timothy, you know what, Timothy, if marketing doesn't work and it's sort of the emergent way of, 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 of saying Scripture's authority isn't right, you know, Timothy, if those mailers don't work, okay, go ahead and preach the word. No, and he says, come here. Preach the word. And I love what it says in verse 1. He says, and I'm not saying this by myself. I am saying this in the presence, look at this, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And it's not just Jesus Christ like, like your buddy who's going to make your life nicer. No, no. It's Jesus Christ who is the judge, who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Do I have your attention, Timothy? Preach the word. Preach the word. I love preaching the word. You know, I... I was telling Corey this. We, we, we typically don't do topical sermons. A topical sermon is what we're doing. We have a topic, 
And then we search in scripture, in scriptures that talk about that topic. We typically do exegetical sermons. An exegetical sermon is what Jose Prado did last week. He took John 9 that talks about Jesus healing a blind man. And he tries to say, Lord, what were you saying in that text to the original audience from the original author? And now, Lord, what is that that core truth? And now, Lord, how does that apply to the church? And I tell you, it is sweet agony to preach from Scripture. And it's harder. I mean, I prepared this week a lot. But it wasn't the agony of when I preach from a text in the presence of God, and I'm on my face saying, oh God, may I not misspeak and speak lies about you. What were you trying to say here? It's a sweet agony. Preaching is a sweet joy. It's, it's like waves that just keep coming. Every Sunday keeps coming, and your faces are before me, and more importantly, God's face is before him, and he's saying, speak my word, son. Preach it. That's sufficient. That'll change these families. That'll change these hearts. That'll build the church. Trust me. And, and yeah, God's doing it. God's doing it. And that's what we're committed to. And that's the mark of a church. Second mark. Let me not move on without saying this before I go to the second mark. Folks, what we're trying to do in preaching is this. We're trying to bridge God's world, how he sees things, and the world we live in. We're trying to connect the two worlds. So it is appropriate to use illustrations. It is appropriate to to, to use relevant, culturally relevant ways to communicate. I'm not against that. But it's, it's connecting holy God and his world with unholy man. And that connection is made possible by Jesus. And it's made every Sunday as the word is preached. And on Wednesday nights when you go to home group and you seek to apply it, And on on Friday mornings, men, when you're leading your families in devotions, connecting holy God, his mind, with unholy unholy man, whose mind is so confused, but slowly is being renewed to God's. And then by the Spirit of God, as Wally said so well, he reaches out the scepter and he says, I'm going to govern you, Al. Not your opinion of things, mine. It's a lifelong thing. That's what preach the word means. And when that happens, folks, oh, I've got to read this. I've got to read this. Just listen. It's a long quote. I don't have it up there, but just listen. I love this quote. It's from David Wells. Preaching is not a conversation. It's not a chat about some interesting ideas or some self-help technique. It is not the moment in which we come to hear our own private message couched in biblical words to make us feel better. No. Preaching is... Is God speaking? He speaks through the stammering lips of the preacher. And boy, do my lips ever stammer. But he preaches through the stammering lips of the preacher when that preacher's mind is on the text of Scripture and his heart is in the presence of God. God lives in the preacher's mouth, said Martin Luther. This is the kind of preaching that issues a summons and nourishes the soul, which draws the congregation into the very presence of God, so that no matter what aspect of God's character or God's truth he is working, he is working in the world, is the focus is God, and we leave with awe and gratitude and encouragement, and sometimes a rebuke. But we have been in the very presence of God. That is what great preaching always does. I'm not saying you get great preaching here, but we're trying. Pray for us. Second mark. 
Second mark, the faithful administration of the sacraments. The faithful administration of the sacraments. What are the sacraments in the church? There are many scriptures we could go to, but jot down these two. Baptism, Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Hopefully that scripture will pop up here in a moment. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. And communion, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 25. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 25. Let's go to Matthew 28, 18 and 19. And Jesus said, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then if we could switch over to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 25. For I, this is Paul now writing. The first was Jesus speaking. This is now the Apostle Paul writing again to a church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, here's, what, here's what's at stake in properly practicing the sacraments. What's at stake is the gospel. Now stay with me for a moment. If the first mark is about the Bible and its sufficiency, the reformers would have called that, by the way, sola escritura, which means scripture alone. And actually, it's sola scriptura, scripture alone. The second mark is about Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone. They had these fancy Latin terms, but these terms meant a lot to the church since the Reformation in the 1500s. Sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide. Fide is the word for faith. What's at stake here, folks, in this, in these, in this mark of the church, is will we guard the gospel? Why do I say that? Because baptism speaks of our life in Christ. You can jot down next to Matthew 28, Romans 6. Jot, look at that later, Romans 6. So we must properly administer the sacraments. We must properly preach the gospel that we are in Christ. He calls us. We died with Christ. We raised with Christ. It's Christ's life in me. And communion, communion speaks of the fact that Christ's atonement, he He atoned for my sins before a holy God. So the gospel truth of atonement, of making peace with God through the blood of Jesus, that's when it says that the the, the sacraments are rightly administered, it's saying the gospel is guarded from so many things. And I don't have time to go into all the things that it is guarded from. But what's at stake is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So, So we're to remember the gospel. A church that is not centered on the gospel is centered on man. It's centered on marketing techniques. It's centered on sort of an emergent view that the authority of scripture isn't for today. It's centered on the therapeutic. Church is where I go to feel good, to be made whole. No, it's not. Church is where you go to be made holy. Eventually that'll make you feel good. Eh, the process might be a little rough on you. But for all eternity, my friend, you will enjoy it. 
Light and momentary afflictions now produce an eternal weight of glory then. Guarding the gospel is guarding our hope. Again, Wally said, what's the hope that God's going to govern me when I have a propensity to self-government? He said, the hope is that Jesus came for that. So when Jesus ascended into heaven and Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father and he says, I've done it, Father. And now the Father says, here are your spoils or your reward or your treasure. This is... You, you did that, your life and your death and your resurrection, it, it, it was effective. Now, here are the spoils of war. This is what you win. This is what you won. Look around. This is what he won. People who can now be governed by Jesus instead of themselves, only by the grace of God. That's gospel. That's what must be guarded in an authentic church. And finally, the last mark of a church. This is a tough one. You might be surprised by this one. Is the practice of something called church discipline. Church discipline. Now, I want you to take a look at, or just jot down Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Sounds like someone's experienced church discipline. No, no I'm just, just joking. I recognize that laugh. One of my favorite people. Matthew 18. And before I read Matthew 18, let me try to explain church discipline. Okay. Everybody with me? All right. This is who you are as the church. This is, these are the marks of the church. This defines you. These are the signatures on you. Okay. If the first mark of the church is properly um, guarding or ministering the scriptures, that's God's word. God's word. If the second mark of the church is properly administering the sacraments, that's God's grace. God's grace. You got that? God's word, God's grace. Now, this third mark talks about God's holiness. And this is the one we don't like. (laughs) This is the one we really don't like. We want God to serve us. And God says, I'm holy. And you must guard my holiness with church discipline. Because if we lose the holiness of God, we lose the gospel. It's a joke. Jesus saves from what? Oh, he saves you from your own self and your sin. Baloney. 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 Jesus saves you. From the holy wrath of God that's hovering over you. And that is serious. That's like me not seeing a guy standing behind me with a baseball bat about to take my head off. But all the rest of you do. And getting saved is the day God turns you around and you see the guy and you go, and it's God. And you go, oh. And your next door neighbor is going, You're an idiot. What are you bowing down for, man? Ah, God's good. God wouldn't do that. My God doesn't do that. My God doesn't judge like that. I never killed anybody. You know, Miami, that's a big deal. Because, you know, (laughs) I never killed anybody. I'm glad. God wouldn't do that to me. And you're like, psst, turn around. He's got a baseball bat. Conversion 
is the first step is the Spirit of God tells you, you're in trouble, pal. The next step is grace. He turns you around. Then he gives you faith and you bow your knee. Because see, the baseball bat, he took to his son. Battered him. Battered him. That's what this third mark deals with, is the holiness of God. You can't mock God. He won't let it happen. Okay, now let's read the scripture. Matthew 16. Sorry, 18. Yeah, let's go back to 16, man. Okay, Matthew 18, verse 15. Should be up here. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus is speaking here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, there's another scripture I want to read where this is actually employed in the New Testament. I didn't give this to our our tech team, but uh, it's in 1 Corinthians. Just write this down. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. This is actually a great illustration for especially those of us in Miami. It's a great illustration. You got a church that's in in Corinth, which is modern-day Greece, Corinth was Miami. Miami is Corinth. It was a port city. Every sexual immorality was there. It was a party city. It was South Beach on steroids. And before there was a South Beach, it was South Beach on steroids. Trust me. So the church is born there. The grace of God comes. People are saved. But look look what Paul has to write here. 1 Corinthians 5. Now this is Paul writing to the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his wife, his father's wife. Okay? So you understand what that's talking about there. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Don't you love? Jesus is all over the place here. Of course he is. This is his body. Jesus Christ is holy. So he must defend his name properly. Or his holiness is not valued and the gospel is lost. Which it's being lost today in our churches. Because we don't take holiness seriously. Nor sin. You are to deliver this man. Listen to this. This is astonishing. You are to deliver this man to Satan. I thought Christians are supposed to deliver people out of Satan's clutches. No, no. Put them into Satan's clutches. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Oh, my goodness gracious. (laughs) You want to talk about swimming against the stream of modern cultural relativistic God is an old grandfather who would never hurt anybody, thank you very much. And we all get in. No, we don't. No, we don't. Church discipline. Church discipline is about the name of God being protected. Church discipline 
is about the church taking sin as seriously as the cross does. Church discipline is about maintaining the gospel under the threat of what I call therapeutic creep. You know, to creep. You could also think like a creep. But therapeutic creep. You could just draw him in your notes. Therapeutic creep. There he is. Therapeutic creep is this. God is good. God would never judge. God is for me. Who can be against me? By the way, these are all true statements. He does judge. But he is for you. He is good. Therefore, God's highest purpose is my best good. And he wants, me to, make, he wants to make me feel good. So I'm going to preach a gospel of what's commonly called health and wealth. A gospel of, he's, 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 man, come to God. Everything's going to be great. And so in our therapeutic self-help sort of Dr. Phil Oprah world, we, we basically say, yeah, yeah, he's like the Dr. Phil. And I'm just going to get all my needs met. I'm just going to be happy for the rest of my life. And we fill churches with people that come for that reason. And what we lose is the holiness of God. So people are sitting in the back, living with each other, unmarried, doing all kinds of obnoxious behavior, doing, fill in the blank of what's going on. And there's almost a boasting in it. Its logical crazy end is that then homosexuals are ordained as bishops in churches. And what we lose is the gospel. Trying to gain a sense of well-being emotionally. That's not why Jesus came for your emotional well-being. Jesus came for something far greater than that. For your eternal salvation. To experience true happiness with the Lord, which can only be found in holiness. So, so, so church discipline turns us from a me-centered church to a Christ-centered church. I think that this church discipline is tied in with the biblical theological doctrines of God's holiness and his election of us. Let me read to you again from Mr. Wells. It's not up on the, on the board. Sorry for that. Email me if you want these quotes. But listen to this. Biblical holiness begins with the holy. See, the problem is when you have a man-centered gospel and you begin with man, and I can seek God and find God, you lose holiness, biblical holiness. Think about that, but just listen to this for a moment. Biblical holiness begins with the holy. But the holy, by its very nature, can be approached only when we come as sinners. He is never accessible, accessible to us as consumers. That's hard for us to even fathom because we are consumers let me read that again he is never accessible to us as consumers but rather as sinners we come in sackcloth and ashes not as buyers i just think a buyer a consumer a sinner in sackcloth and ashes 
Which are you? Which am I? A buyer demands things from God. A buyer slams his fist down and says, I can't believe I got this sickness. What do you mean my internet doesn't work? Which it doesn't, I found out this morning. Yeah. I did a little buying with the Lord and then he had this, you know, hey, you're my servant. Have a good attitude here because you're about to preach about this in another hour. Um, but a buyer demands, a consumer has consumer rights. A sinner is on his face in sackcloth and ashes. How do we approach the holy? Indeed, we cannot approach the holy at all on our own terms. Oh, that's good. We cannot approach the holy at all on our own terms. We must see that the holy has first approached us in Christ and through him reconciled us to himself. Listen to that carefully. We must see, we must see that the holy has first approached us in Christ and through him, Christ, reconciled us to himself. That's my hope. That's my hope. He sought me. He found me. I was the blind beggar, as we heard last week, and I didn't even know God was standing in front of me, and God touches me, and he puts mud on my eyes. He says, go wash, and I can see. I can see. See, the revelation of the holy would be unbearable were we to see it in any other way than, within, than from within Christ. We could not stand the revelation of the holy God unless we see it from within Christ. Therefore, if we're not in Christ and our churches are filled with people that are not in Christ at times, we don't want to see the holiness of God. So we put it to the side and we talk about other things that are true about God, but we don't want to talk about the holiness of God. It's like the crazy uncle we keep in the back you know, room when someone comes and visits. You don't want to talk about sin and judgment and wrath to the world because you may scare them away. And we lose the gospel. The revelation of the holy would be unbearable were we to see it in any other way than from within Christ. But oh, thank God, proper practicing of the sacraments means that I am in God. I am in Christ. He chose me. I've been baptized into Christ. It's a spiritual reality that's, that's, that's testified by the physical sign. Oh, I'm in Christ. Uh, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, it's a sign, but it means that I have life, his life, his blood covered my sin. His body took that, that pain and those whippings from me. Wow. Now I can see a holy God because I know I have a mediator between me and the holy God, but I can't denigrate his holiness because I, I can't live up to it. No, no, I keep his holiness because Christ fulfilled it and now he's changed me to be like the holy God. First Peter says you cannot see God without holiness. That passage scares me. But I have the holiness of Christ to my account's good while he's changing me to be like the one who called me. So in Christ, what we are seeing is God's holiness in its action on our sin. In Christ, what we see is God's holiness in action on our sin. In Christ, what we see is God's holiness in action on our Christ. Holiness, mercy, they meet in Christ on the cross. God's actions as a holy God against my sin. God's mercy toward me to let me in. So what we see instead is holiness coming down in grace and in Christ going forth against sin in triumph. Church, I want us to bow our head. I, I don't have time to get to the mission of the church. Corey will teach you that in two weeks. But I want you to bow your head right now. I want the worship team to join me up here. Bow your head, please. It's a holy moment. The holy God is speaking to you. This isn't just a chat. This isn't just an idea. 
This is, I believe, holy God dealing with his people, his body. This is the head of the church speaking. So I pray that your heart would be attentive to the Lord. And with every head bowed, I just want to pray for you. There are some here this morning who need to turn around and see that there is a holy God who has justifiable holy wrath against your sinful life. And you have not bowed your knee to him. You have mocked him. And this morning is the, is the morning. This morning is the morning. Receive the mercy of God. So I'm going to pray for you in a moment. I'll pray for you in a moment. But, but please, you be praying right now. Just say, God, let me see it. If you honestly don't, I respect that, friend, because none of us saw it unless God gives it to us. But just ask. Just ask. Just ask. Lord, I pray right now. You know my heart. You know how I love everybody here. So many I know so well. Lord, I pray that this morning you would reveal yourself through your word. Lord, through the gospel truths. Through what your scriptures say about your holiness and your character. Lord, Lord, when Moses said, I want to see your face. You hid him in the cleft of the rock. And when you went by him, you said, the Lord God who is merciful. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So you revealed yourself as a merciful God. But then to Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he saw you, he heard the cherubim announce, holy, holy, holy. And he fell down. He says, oh, woe is me. I'm going to die. And they took a a, a coal from the altar and touched his lips and purified his lips. And it's a picture of Christ. So, oh, Father, would you show my friends the terrible, terrible nature of your wrath against our sin? And then would you show our friends the glorious grace of your mercy in Christ that you visited the wrath we deserve on him and gave us the mercy we don't? And may there be at once fear and may there be joy. The joy of fearing God. Fear that draws, not repels. Respect and honor and life. May there be just gut laughter when people realize, I'm forgiven because Jesus was condemned. I am alive because Christ died and rose again. And if that's you, just do business with God right now. Business with God right now. For the rest of us, we're going to sing a song. It's a beautiful song. It's called, Oh Great God. It's based on the Valley of Vision prayer on regeneration or new life. If you could please put the words up to that song. I'll give you a moment. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing it. But look at these words. Think about these words. Verse 1. Oh great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Let's stand and sing that.